Hey friends, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful super fans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available weekdays on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. On my first trip to Lahore, I met a lady who's probably my mother's age. And she told me that her family was split between what is now Pakistan and India. So she lived in Lahore and part of her family lived in what is now Maharashtra or Bombay. In 1947, the partition of British India split neighbors and families apart. So at some point when this woman was 10 or 11, her aunt who lives in Mumbai came to see them. And everyone was very excited, everyone was very nervous. The children were nervous because they'd never met an Indian before. For the last 75 years, partition has shaped the lives of those born in its aftermath, who have inherited their ancestors' losses and curiosities, myths and fears. So now she says, my aunt is coming to visit. We don't know anything about her. We don't know anything about India. The one thing we know is the banknotes. And I have seen a symbol on the Indian banknotes of a four-headed lion. Now, this young girl at the time says, my aunt comes and she meets us and I look at her and then I look to her side and I look to the back and I say, well, where are the rest of your heads? Because I thought all Indians had four heads. <laughs> and she says that, how was I to know we were the same people? Wow. How was I to know that we look the same? You know, and I want to say that partition created so many ridiculous myths about who the other was. And it continues to. It continues to shape the way people perceive people across the border. Partition triggered the largest forced migration in human history. More than 14 million people were displaced as Muslims fled to Pakistan and Hindus and Sikhs fled to India. For the last decade, Anshal Malhotra, who was born more than 40 years after partition, has been gathering its stories. My name is Anchal Malhotra, and I'm a writer and oral historian, and I live in Delhi. Her first book, Remnants of Partition, told the stories of partition survivors through the objects they carried with them. Her second, In the Language of Remembering, turns to inherited memory. I don't think it ends with the first generation. It cannot. I think any historical event, when viewed through the prism of memory, will provide you infinite perspectives to look at it as each generation progresses. On Ideas, my conversation with Anchal Malhotra about memory lost and found, and how the stories of the past still have the power to change us in the present. Chapter 1 Origins. I want to ask you a first question in the same manner that you ask your interviewees. When did you first hear about your family's story of partition? How old were you and did you understand what it meant? 
I have to say I've dreaded this question since the moment the book came out because I was certain someone would ask me. And it's always easier to be on the other side asking people that question. The first time I heard my family's stories of partition was when I was 23 years old. I mean, I never grew up with any stories. And for many families, that's the case where silence is practiced quite religiously. I never heard the word Pakistan. I never heard the words partition or, or anything related. Pakistan was heard on the news. And the word I heard growing up a lot was refugee. Because my grandfather, when he came to India, bought a shop in what was then a refugee market. It was built as an economic initiative for refugees who had come from across the border to help them stand on their feet. And it was a bookshop. So there was always a bookshop in a refugee market. And I think that was a word that my grandfather tried very hard to rid himself of. But partition fully fledged. I only heard stories when I asked. Your grandmother even told you that we wanted the sadness to end with us, to remain in our generation, to never be passed down. Given that, why was it so urgent for you to excavate this history anyway? I think if you would have asked me when I was growing up, I would have had a different answer because when we are young, we don't really care so much about the things that happened before us. And when we get older, we realize how much we are actually defined by those things and how much of our personality is made up by the vulnerabilities and conditions of our ancestors, no matter how far back they go. And I think when we are in school in India, we are taught partition from such a removed and distant lens as if it cannot touch us anymore that our first instinct is never to come home and ask older people in our family, oh, did you live through this thing called partition? It is simply to think of it as something that happened in the past, as an appendage to the independence movement, and that's where it ended. Well, it was when I encountered objects that people had carried across the border, which became my first book, Remnants of Partition, that I realized how visceral the memories of partition still were. And how important it was for me to understand my own family's, not just history, but how the event has shaped their personalities, their behaviors, the way they pass memory down to us, even unknowingly. And um, well, talking to your family is the hardest, isn't it? Yes. I think partition is one of those very unique historical events where when you ask a question about it, the likelihood of your interviewee asking you a question about why you are asking a question is very high. So for example, if I ask my grandfather, tell me how it happened. You were 19 years old. What did you see? His first reaction was, well, why do you want to know? And what will it change? And this question, what will it change? Will it change the border? Will I go back to my homeland? Will partition not have happened? No, of course, none of this is true, but I feel like I would know and I would know and I would know why it defines me. And yes, uttering the words won't change anything, but then we would share that. And me, I mean, he's no longer here, but uh, me talking to him about it would not change anything in him, but it certainly would change everything about our relationship, you know? The most common thing survivors told to me in our interviews was that memory ends with the first generation. 
that like as you read that piece that my grandmother said that she didn't want to pass anything down but what they don't realize is even in silence you are passing something down and it may be bias it may be prejudice it may be anger it may be curiosity it may just be pain mm-hmm. but i i think given given the relationship between the three nations of the erstwhile british empire in south asia and given how history is sometimes wielded for political gain and how conveniently we we adhere to the norms of us versus them it's such a myopic almost simplistic way to look at peoples that were once one and shared so much more than just land uh they shared lives you know and i think that if we can if we can begin an archive not just of survivors but of descendants to see how that memory has passed down future generations will be richer for it you know and i don't think it ends with the first generation it cannot i think any historical event when viewed through the prism of memory will provide you infinite perspectives to look at it as each generation progresses viewing partition through the prism of memory can also make it possible for people to reflect on its meanings in new ways both for descendants and immediate survivors I mean I've asked my grandmother this several times that um, if someone like me a journalist and oral historian a writer was going from refugee camp to refugee camp after partition saying do you want to talk what did you lose who did you lose how did it feel would you have wanted to speak to them and she was so quick to say no and that's when I thought the conversation ended but there was more she paused and she said you know even now when you ask me about it you ask your questions and then we talk and you leave and then i am left with that memory and i think about it and i then i thought to myself how many times in the last 8 or 9 years have i asked her to be that 16 year old girl who migrated from what became pakistan to india how many times have we entered the refugee camp how many times have i asked her about what her first paycheck was what did she use it for how many times have we spoken about the death of her brother the sadness of her mother the death of her father the loss of you know land wealth home i don't know what that feels like and immediately the entire exercise of getting survivors to speak felt enormously selfish hmm. but you are always walking that double edged sword it is important to archive but it is also important to respect um what well, i guess i am trying to say that even if someone has agreed to speak to you they may not want to do it at that moment and there may be consequences yes yes yeah. still after all this time yes exactly and that's what really you know is sort of unfathomable in a way that the, it's still so visceral and people still live with this and it means so much to them interesting you frame this uh as a, as a possibly a, as a very selfish act because when you look at the book and we see how it's structured you know not by geography religion or nationality but by the experiences that cut across those categories and the question that stems from that is how much of this project was also kind of an act of peacemaking for you i think we all live with these kind of contradictions in ourselves. So the great thing is yes of course it's selfish because I want to know and I want to complete as much as I can my family's history and my origin. 
but it actually has nothing to do with me also in another level um you may be the medium for the storytelling but the project belongs to every single name that's in the book when i first started thinking of this project i had many interviews conducted over a period of 9 years and i was thinking of how to lay the book out and obviously the the most natural way you think is okay well i'm going to make three parts it's going to be india pakistan bangladesh and then i sat on that for a while and i thought to myself well here you are trying to break those divisions and your structure is making it further divisive so it couldn't have been by nationality it certainly couldn't have been by religion because many stories defied that easy categorization into one religion or the other and so the ultimately the format that felt most natural most human uh was of an emotional categorization so there are 24 chapters in the book each driven by a particular emotion be it uh belonging or love friendship fear separation and i thought this was important for many reasons one it would allow multiple nationalities to sit within the same chapter sometimes right beside one another in a way that you sometimes can't really tell which story is pakistani what is bangladeshi what is indian and you are forced to reflect on how similar the experiences or you are forced to reflect on how different the experiences so you it's uh, just going back to a phrase you used just to to get right into the heart of the question you said you know when the purpose is to break down the barriers so what was that at, at some level was that your motivation going into this project it's always been my motivation i don't know if it will ever translate into actual feel like visible change and i don't actually know if one book can do that or one writer or one artist or one anyone can do that but the thing is that yes that is always the end goal i want to see in my lifetime that people young people people my age that have never witnessed partition but are really carrying its burdens mentally sometimes physically to be able to walk on the soil of their ancestors their origin with dignity chapter 2 reactivation Many of the people Anchal Malhotra spoke with said that the memory of partition lay dormant in their families but sometimes that memory rose to the surface What what kind of events tend to reactivate those memories The first time oral histories of partition came out was after the Sikh genocide of 1984 So women and scholars like urvashi butalia ritu menon kamla basin were volunteering in the camps for survivors of the genocide october 31st 1984 the then prime minister indira gandhi was shot down by her sikh bodyguards which led to massive riots across the country and populations basically targeting sikhs all over and for many people it reignited what it felt when they had to flee during partition which was really barely 20 years before so it was really a sort of partition is precedent it acted as precedent for some you know for current violence and there is a story in the book about uh, a woman who was then a teenager she was in school and she remembers 
she says we were taken out of school and we were brought back home and in our house people began to collect neighbors families extended family relatives friends they began to collect all sikhs and she says that her mother sister was supposed to get married during those days november 4 was the wedding this is kuldeep this is kuldeep kaur exactly and she says that we thought everything would be fine it you know it was only november 1st november 4 with the wedding everything would be fine but as time went on we were not able to get hold of the groom or anyone in his family and later they learned that the family's home had been burnt and the family had been burnt inside it and she says that when we started to hear news of what was happening in the city of delhi all the older relatives inside the house kept saying this is how it happened this is what partition felt like and you know as i'm saying it right now i have goosebumps because it's it's so visceral and i can imagine the old women the old men thinking of what they had lost and anyway the riots did die down and kuldeep remembers when she went back to school she says that all the sikh boys had cut off their hair and then you know she ends our interview with this incredible line about freedom and memory and i want to read that out please she says you are an invisible witness to a real memory sometimes i think traumatic memories carry a certain forbearance to themselves whether i witness or inherited they remind us of the boundaries that we have to live within they establish the cost of freedom Anchal Malhotra spoke with several people who visited their grandparents' ancestral homes, houses their families had abandoned during partition. Many of them were greeted warmly, but also with trepidation, because the families who had built their lives in those homes feared the descendants had returned to claim the land. What what does that tell you about the precarity of these lives that they built after they had been displaced? that the fragility exists you know um that even 60 70 years later your i suppose your belonging to a certain place is so fragile that it can be uprooted and people live with fear as well so many people said we keep a suitcase just in case we have food by our bedside just in case you know um that things you know the instability of life i think that is something a lot of people that went through partition continue to live with even though they may be very well off now even though they may have settled down have great lives their children have good lives but i think that feeling at the back of your mind that oh well one day it may happen again or you never know just in case you know another person said whenever there's you know we have two cans of sugar when one runs out another one is brought immediately just in case and that's a pattern i've seen so many times from a number of different generations so it it's obviously not just one right it's obviously not just the survivor it has trickled down and i it really tells you about the fragility of any situation following such a traumatic event mm-hmm. 
You're listening to my conversation with oral historian Anchal Malhotra. This is Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Seventy-five years ago, the partition of British India gave birth to the independent nations of India and Pakistan. But partition didn't end in 1947. Its aftershocks continue to shape the lives of millions of people today. Anchal Malhotra's new book, In the Language of Remembering, is an archive of inherited memories. It's a project that required continuous unlearning. When you start to speak to people across borders, any kind of border for that matter, man-made, land-made, mental, whatever, there is an enormous amount of unlearning that will happen quite naturally if you give yourself into that. Chapter 3. Unlearning. We are born within a certain construct of society, nation, religion, class, caste, and it's very difficult to see beyond it. So the minute I began speaking to people in Pakistan and Bangladesh, the diaspora, people that have had multiple migrations in their family, very complicated interfaith, internation marriages, it's very hard to keep thinking of that very narrow us versus them. And I think the futility of, of the border really dawns on you. That how are people that are intrinsically so similar, limited by this line put down by a colonizer? And you see this like in places outside of South Asia where Indians and Pakistanis and Bangladeshis meet freely. They really enjoy one another's company. You know, they, we can pronounce each other's names. We speak one another's languages. We eat the same food. We look the same. We feel like we found someone who is our own. And I'm thinking back to my years in Canada and how some of the best, best interactions I had were with Pakistanis. It's so confusing at first because you start to think, well, why have these people been portrayed as our enemy for so many years? One woman Antal Malhotra spoke with said her grandmother believed, quote, only Muslims killed Sikhs, that it was one-sided violence. In other words, that there were no Sikh perpetrators of violence during partition. The woman said her grandmother's trauma, quote, legitimized this singular understanding of truth. But there are also stories of violence perpetrated by one's own community or even one's own family that challenge those easy dichotomies. 
The Punjabi poet Ustad Daman wrote, You were ruined in the name of freedom, and so were we. The redness of our eyes reveals that you have wept, and so have we. How common do you think, have you found that, that for families to talk about atrocities committed by their communities, in addition to the atrocities that their own communities suffered? In regards to partition, it's definitely a subject that comes up less than the victim. Um, I, I think, how do you ask that question? How would you even know? Right. And in my now decade of work, I've only heard two stories um, of this nature. And when I did, I didn't quite know what to do with them. Because, you know, for the longest time, the perpetrator has been faceless, nameless. It's a community. The minute you assign it a face, even an older face, things change. Of course. With the first story, I received an email from someone. And they said, there is a story in my family of a distant relative who sold and abducted women during partition. And I, I had never received. I mean, I really didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know how to ask the questions. I didn't know how to begin the conversation. My interview wouldn't write every day. They would write every few days. They would tell details about the village. They would tell details about other things and then return to the perpetration. As they began to talk about the, I suppose, the ferocity of what had happened and the nature of this abduction and the number of women and everything, it really angered me. And when I began writing the piece, it was very wrathful. You know, it was it was colored with with prejudice. It was colored with like I, I can't describe it, but here was a story about young women being abducted. I am a young woman, I'm putting myself in their shoes, and it was horrifying. And I sent it to my interviewee and he read it and um I got an email saying well, basically they were very surprised because of how angry it was. And I I suppose the important lesson that I learned is that no matter what kind of story you are telling, whether a victim or perpetrator, the onus is not on you to portray any kind of judgment because neither were you there and nor the person who's telling the story with a lot of courage, may I add, to even mm -hmm. voice it, to even associate themselves to that kind of event was there. Which brings me to Nishant. This is the second story about perpetration in Antal Malhotra's book. It's about a young man who believed his grandfather might have been involved in violence during partition. Years after that, Nishant and I tried to actually speak to his grandfather. Hmm. But it did never worked out because he was unwell and um, ultimately his grandfather died. And I asked Nishant, would you like to talk about it anyway? And so Nishant began to recount his grandfather's stories. Stories his grandfather revealed in his 90s. And I think that was inspired by multiple events. Uh, the first event was the demolition of the Babri Masjid in 1992. Again, a communal violent, uh, an event of communal violence, which um, I suppose evokes fear in the lives of people. And so they are 
forced to revisit earlier trauma that made them feel the same way. And the second event was a small riot that happened uh, in Muzaffarabad in UP, which also spilled into their village uh, of Shamli. And he was worried because all the people that worked on the farm that his grandfather owned were Muslim. So Nishant asked his grandfather that something happened here. And that led his grandfather to talk about partition and how when he was a young man in Delhi, he was sitting with a group of boys and someone came over and said, oh, look, those... And, you know, he said, I don't know whether this is before partition or during the days of partition or just around the riots that ensued. So he says that this gentleman came to these group of boys and said, oh, well, look at those Muslim shops. Look at how they're operating. Aren't you going to do something about it? And now keep in mind that these boys were sitting peacefully and they may have never done anything had this gentleman not come and said something. So Nishan says that from what I know... These boys went and looted the shop and probably even killed the owners. It was a shoe shop. So now this little nugget of of violence is lodged in Nishan's brain. And he's speaking to his grandfather about it. And he says a lot of things my grandfather says are quite contradictory. Where he says, you should not judge anyone on the basis of their religion. And on the other hand, he's telling me this story of what he did. And um, he says that his own life seemed very contradictory because he was so nationalistic, but then he was also quite forgiving. And he often talked about purgatory. Mm. And Nishant asked him, do you mean you are in purgatory or you fear being in purgatory or you will be in purgatory? And his grandfather didn't answer. But I think it may have been all of the above, because towards the end of his life, Nishan says that he, he, I guess he had nothing to lose. And he felt remorse. And it may have just been one, you know, that small incident. He may have just shoplifted. He may have just beaten someone up. There may not have been any death. But in Nishan's mind, there is a what if. And now, I want to I just want to say how much courage it takes to voice these things sometimes. Absolutely. Right? It, this is one of the most important revelations I have come across in this decade of doing these interviews, that it takes courage to put words to feelings that feel larger than yourself and very, very complicated. So Nishan saying, sometimes I feel like I may have that gene of violence in me if provoked. Wow. It it meant so much. And I didn't know what to say in response. And I actually, I don't know if I have said anything in the chapter. I think sometimes people just want someone to listen. You know, and not to make this seem like, like a, a, a therapy session, because it's not. But I, I do think sometimes you want that kind of... Um, well, you want someone who won't judge you for what you think. And as I learned in the first interview about perpetration, it was not my place to judge. I was there simply to record, to archive, so that there is a record. Chapter 4. An Undivided Landscape Can I ask you to to also tell us the story of Hussein Khaled. 
It's a beautiful story. It begins at the border and it kind of pans out into a larger landscape. He begins his story by saying that when I'm at Vaga, and Vaga is the most famous border post between India and Pakistan set up in October 1947. And now it's like such a ridiculous show of like nationalism. It's like a pony show almost. There's pomp and dance and the soldiers on the Indian side and soldiers on the Pakistani side are trying to one-up each other in their gestures of... Anyway, whatever. Uh, so now here Hussein is, young man. He says, rather than looking at this this display of nationalism, he says, I look to the other side to see someone who wants to look beyond that as well. And I said, but what do you mean? He says that when this evening's dance was over, he looked back at India because he's Pakistani, he's born in Karachi. He looked back at India and said, I looked beyond that border where the sky and the grass met each other and it looked the same in Pakistan and in India. And very often when I have crossed this border, I always think about the vegetation that grows from one side to the other and the rain that falls on both sides and the sun that shines on both sides and how these elements at borderlands, these natural elements are devoid of nationality. They are free agents in a way, the birds that fly from one side to the other, you know, and there is there is like a, a little moment of beauty in this thought. So this is where our conversation begins. And then he goes on to say that, during the Kargil War of 1999, which I also remember very well, it was, people of my generation will remember it because it was on the news a lot. It was a war fought over Kashmir. And uh, he says that my village is very close to that border. And I kept thinking, why do we live so close to the border? Because we could hear the guns. You know, as a child, I think he was like eight or nine. Mm -hmm. He thought that. And then one night, he saw lights on the other side through the mountains, because the village is, is at the base of, of mountains, this beautiful mountain range. And he says, I saw lights. And my father told me that was a famous temple in India. And I said, did your father say that with any kind of bitterness or anger? And he says, no, my father said that with joy and peace, because that land where that temple is, is where his ancestors came from. And that is when I first learned that my family was from a place called Jammu in India. And as he grew older, he kept visiting the village. And he says, sometimes the river, you know, India and Pakistan share rivers, right? Borders cannot eliminate all natural elements. Yes. Um, so he says, sometimes when the water flows from India to Pakistan, it carries little pine cones. And people would say, oh, India is a lakri Like a little piece of wood has come from India. Hmm. Um, and there would be joy. Pine cones. Pine cones. Because it's, you know, it's mountainous region, right? There was such a sense of oneness in his thoughts and such aspirations. Hmm. You know, the sad thing about India and Pakistan, so many sad things. But um, books are not allowed to go from one side of the border to the other. We have no trade at the moment. So now Hussein is asking me, when will your book be in Pakistan? And this is really like, it's heartbreaking because half the people you write about can't read their stories, right? So he concocted this incredible journey where someone was coming from India to Dubai and they would go wow. to America and then they would go to Pakistan and he got the book. Incredible. It was incredible, like, but it just reminded me of the lengths that we have to go to to share mm -hmm. some <laughs> something. So basic as a book. 
Many people you spoke to said they wished partition had never happened. But without partition, there would have been no Pakistani and no Bangladeshi nationhood. So how do you reconcile those two ideas? The first thing is to accept that most conversations about partition are Indocentric. Hmm. And that needs to change. Um, I think many Indians will say, oh, I wish partition never happened. Or it was such a loss. And it was. And absolutely, I agree. I wish it never happened. But that means we are taking away from the fact that two nations were born and two identities were created and people live in those nations and we have to respect that. So as someone who has access to all three sides and nationalities, I always try to be very careful uh, when I'm speaking to people because you cannot take that away from them, right? Um, But I also want to say that Sometimes the many partitions of the land create very complicated identities for people. For instance, one of the most important interviews that goes between 47 and 71, so 47, the partition of British India, and 1971, the creation of Bangladesh, or the second partition, is an interview with Isra Nasir, who lives in New York and is a mental health specialist, and she's Pakistani. Her grandparents migrated from India to what became East Pakistan in 1947. And so we begin our conversation there where she says, all of my family moved to East Pakistan, to Dhaka, and we lived there. And it was a very tumultuous journey, uh, very difficult to find home in a new place, but they managed. And then... then she goes on to say, in 71, we saw a lot of oppression, my parents they witnessed as Pakistani citizens, they witnessed my my mother faced violence, she faced danger. And at the end of that conversation, I am basically recapping all these details. And so I say, okay, so your grandparents moved in uh, in 47 and your parents moved after 71 to Pakistan. So the migration was India to East Pakistan in 47 and in 71 to Pakistan proper. And she says, yes, and my parents met because of partition. And I said, well, you mean your grandparents? She says, no, no, my parents met because of partition. And I said, the 19, what? She says, yeah, my father was my mother's English tutor and they met because of partition. And I said, the 1947 partition. She says, no, the 1971 partition. And I paused and I thought to myself, okay, Of course, you're Pakistani. For you, 1971 is the partition of Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, for a minute, I was was so shocked. And she says, well, why? What do you call 1971? (laughs) And I said, well, I call it the Third India-Pakistan War. And, you know, it's so interesting how historical events are meted out differently to different countries that were involved for Pakistan, 1971 is partition. For India, it's the third India-Pakistan war. For Bangladesh, it's liberation. And these are valid perspectives. And I think there was there was a little bit of uncomfortable silence between her and me because as, as we realized that we have been defined by these histories and our perspectives have been defined by how these events have treated our families. And we have completely opposing 
you know, viewpoints, but that doesn't mean we can't have conversations about it as we were doing right now. It may be a bit awkward realizing it live, but I think I, I, it was another learning for me, right? or rather unlearning. So how much of identity today of people who live in those countries is imposed by history? It sounds like a lot. It's complicated. I, I feel like I'm saying that for a lot of things because things are very complicated here. And they are getting even more complicated as India is becoming more Hindu. And Pakistan, of course, is is Muslim majority anyway. So things are really being defined by those two. I don't know. It is it is a myopic view, in my opinion. But the politics of, of today is going in that direction. And so I think sometimes to say you are Indian is to be opposed to Pakistan. Right. But again, that's a very simplistic way of looking at things. Because those two countries are not antonyms of one another. They are not opposites. They are twins. Like they are literally twins. They were born from one land. They are mirror. They are mirror images of one another. And so sometimes I feel like people, you know, people think of identity in just these two ways. But it is far more complicated than that because there are so many uncertainties, so many vulnerabilities, so many nuances. And it is okay for stories of partition to be complicated and contradictory because we are human. And we don't remember in chronological ways and, you know, the present evokes certain things from the past and we bury certain things on purpose. And the story still continues. Yes, the story very much still continues because newer generations are inheriting uh, not just memory, but also anger and hatred and bitterness to a time that they did not live and a people that they don't know anything about and an unwillingness to know them on both sides. I think I, I spend a lot of time talking about Pakistan because I think particularly people in India need to understand that governments and people are two very different things. And common people on both sides do want, I don't know if they, they, I mean, I don't know what reconciliation means for us, but they at least do want civility and conversation. This much I can tell you. Chapter 5, Reconciliation. On the 70th anniversary of partition, um, Pakistani-Canadian historian Anam Zakaria wrote that both India and Pakistan are still holding on to partition like an existential imperative. So now on the 75th anniversary, can you speak to what that existential imperative looks like? I suppose loving their nation means hating the other. No, Anam writes in her first book, that in Pakistan there are rickshaws that say Hindustan se rishta kya, like what is the relationship with India of hatred, of bitterness, things like this. And similar things happen in India as well. But I think it's kind of understood that you define yourself in a term that is against the other. And that has continued. Um, that has continued on, a, on like the large scale. 
But I think these conversations, like the ones in my book, are happening on a more grassroots, organic level. And it takes a lot more time to break this kind of attitude of hate than it does to, to grow it. What do you think? What do you think India and Pakistan might look like if they stopped using partition as an existential imperative? What would we talk about? What would we fight about? <laughs> no, I actually, um, I don't know. Honestly, I can't. It seems like the most unconceivable image because on one hand, you know that if we stop fighting and listen, then God, it we would be really powerful together. Trade would resume. You know, social relations would resume. People would be able to travel back and forth. So many sites of worship that are right now mm. on across the border, people may be able to visit them. But I also know that that's just such an impossibility. I, I literally cannot see it. And I feel really disheartened by the fact that I know in my lifetime that actually may never happen. So my, my grandparents saw partition. My parents saw 65 and 71 war. I remember Kargil. What will my children and the generations after that see? And how long? You know, uh, an, an interviewee of mine said something so interesting. He said that truth and reconciliation, those words come in an order for a reason. Because without truth, you cannot get to reconciliation. But here in in South Asia, where truth is manifold, where everyone has their own version of truth, where every event means different things to different nationalities, the first thing is to understand that truth is different and truth is not singular and to listen to each other, not just to your own countrymen, but to those across the border, to listen to their perspective, to respect their perspective. I mean, these are easy words though. And only when that happens, can we think of reconciling with what has been lost on, on all sides. You write, so I try not to hark back to the geography of an undivided land, but rather the relationships that once existed between common people. Of all the stories of love and friendship that you uncovered through this project, what's the one that really stands out in your mind? So several years ago, I was part of this uh, academic panel where everyone was talking about partition. And after that panel, one of the gentlemen sent me a message saying, I have an interesting story of partition for you. He is a Bangladeshi professor. And when he was young, um, his girlfriend broke up with him and his father tried to comfort him. And so this professor tells his father that I broke up with my girlfriend and the father says, don't worry. Your father has been through this very thing. And so begins this incredible story of love and heartbreak from partition. When his father was a young boy living in undivided India, he fell in love with the landowner's daughter. He was a Muslim, she was a Hindu, but they fell in love. And partition happened and she stayed in India. He had to migrate to what was then East Pakistan, now Bangladesh. Many decades passed, they did not speak to each other. And then suddenly, 25 years later, she sent him a letter and said, my father has died. I'm all by myself. I have inherited a lot of wealth. I have not married and I'm waiting for you. Wow. And she never married. And he, of course, had married. He had children. 
And I don't actually think he ever told anyone about receiving that letter. And then several decades after that, uh, and he also never went to see her. Uh, so several decades after that, when his son, the professor in Bangladesh, tells him about this heartbreak, the father says, let me share a letter with you. And he tells him how he wished he would have reached out. He wished he would have gone to see her because he really wanted to and he really loved her. It's like first love, child, childhood mm-hmm. love. And because of this partition line, because of the identities it created, he never could. And now this young professor is looking for this woman after his father has passed to know more about his father's life when he was a child in undivided India. It It is so vulnerable, a father opening up about this and how the politics of partition divides people. Now, in this case, yes, romantic love, but it divided friends, it divided neighbors, it divided business partners, and I think these stories never get told. What dominates the landscape of partition is violence. And that does a great disservice to the human, the sheer humanity of partition. You know, if, if there is violence on one end of the spectrum, kindness and friendship has to exist on the other side. And I think one of the reasons why this book I've written is over 700 pages is because I wanted to have as many stories of friendship and love and kindness and hope as I could. That's a great place to end. Um, thank you so much for taking us to that world and to um, and bringing such insight to what happened. Thank you. I um, I don't think I'll ever tire speaking about partition, and I think I I also want to say how grateful I am to my interviewees and for you, for your thoughtful questions. Um, Thank you for having me. Thanks a lot for being here. On Ideas, you were listening to my conversation with oral historian Anchal Malhotra. She's the author of two books of nonfiction, Remnants of Partition and In the Language of Remembering. Her novel, A Love Story Set During Partition, is called The Book of Everlasting Things. This episode was produced by Pauline Holdsworth. Readings by Nahid Mustafa. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. The technical producer for Ideas is Danielle Duval. Our senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. And we leave you today with a song that is intimately tied to Anchal Malhotra's inherited memory of partition. The song Husna was originally written as a poem by the Indian actor Piyush Mishra, and it was produced uh, for Coke Studio in 2018 by the composer Hitesh Sonik, who has a history of partition in his family. I remember the first time I heard it because the song begins with the word Lahore. It's like an extended Lahore. Lahore ke usu Pahle ajle ke Do pargana mein pounche You know, that very word alone, I felt sort of like a deep incision in my heart. Two of my grandparents are from Lahore. And so it is a word, but it is also a land that was once a home and now is a memory. 
and I remember the first time just goosebumps erupting across my arm and I had to pause the track. I, you know, the song, it takes us down the streets of Lahore. And I keep thinking about the time I was walking down the streets looking for my grandmother's house in Lahore and not finding it. I've heard Piyush Mishra talk about the origin of the song and he tells the story of two lovers separated at partition. Husna, who remains in Pakistan, and Javed, who is now in India. Husna has not married, and Javed is married and he has children. But he writes Husna a letter, imagining that he is walking through the streets of Lahore to her, walking through the streets of this Duja Mulk, second land, other land, other country we call Pakistan. Where Javed is not only telling Husna that he misses her, but he's asking, what her life in Pakistan is like. So he says, Patte kya jharte hain Pakistan mein vaise jaise jharte hain yahaan. Patte kya jharte hain Pakistan mein vaise hi jaise jharte yahaan. Do the leaves from the trees fall in Pakistan too as they do here? Here as in India. Hota ujala kya vaisa hi hai does dawn break in the same way that it does here in India? And then he ends. I think this, like, the end of that is so difficult to listen to this song um, and not cry. The last line of the song is, Or rota hai ratu mein Pakistan kya vaise jaise Hindustan. At night, does Pakistan also cry like Hindustan does? And it, you know, it goes back to Ustad Daman's words that Nala read earlier that the redness in our eyes is reflected in your eyes. Um, our emotions are mirrored because the countries are mirrored. Born at the stroke of midnight. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.